Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Wick Realty. In a city filled with realtors and real estate companies, Wick is truly one of the best. What I really love is that this company is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people, including my family. The last time we bought and sold a home, we used WIC. So if you're buying, selling, building, if you are looking for investment property, talk to Katie WIC or one of her outstanding agents. That's WICRealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. So 2020 is finally over. And obviously, we faced a lot of challenges when the pandemic hit in March of last year. And one of the fairly insignificant ones for me in the big scheme of things was that I had pre-recorded some interviews that I hadn't released yet. And I just didn't feel good about releasing them during the pandemic or the aftermath. And so I sat on this one, which featured local chef Scott Buchanan uh, since early in 2020. But I'm happy to be able to finally release it as the first podcast episode of 2021. Scott is the co-owner, along with his wife, Wren, of YCSF, one of my favorite local restaurants. He was also part of the ownership team that created and opened Six Car on Polk. Now, Six Car still exists, but the original launch team is no longer part of that restaurant, which we talk about some in this episode. Scott is extremely talented, and like any good chef, He definitely has some opinions. He doesn't pull punches, and we talk about some things that are great about living here, but also some attitudes that might be holding Amarillo back. It feels like the kind of introspection we need after a very weird year. Keep in mind, though, that this conversation took place before the pandemic. In case you're wondering why we don't mention COVID or masks or the impact on restaurants or any of that stuff. So here's Scott Buchanan. Scott Buchanan, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks cool. for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I uh, I appreciate. It. I've wanted to talk to you um, actually since I started the show. We we knew each other before that, and I knew that you'd be a good guest. And we just haven't made it there yet. Yeah, so I'm just... glad that you're here at this point. Um, so the thing that I usually ask to start the show is I ask my guests, "How did you end up here in Amarillo?" So so what's your story? Well, I was born here, and then uh, right around 2000, I moved to Austin for about six seven years. Um, I would come home periodically while I was gone for holidays and stuff and just always kind of noticed, you know, the Amarillo was kind of starting to get more progressive, you know, and, you know, early 2000s is still a long time ago yeah. nowadays. But at the time, you know, I was building a skill set that, uh, you know, because I started my first kitchen job when I was like 17 here in town. Where was that? Harrigan's. Harrigan's, okay. Yeah. And uh, so I started there as a fry cook, you know, a line cook and, you know, something about it. I don't know if it was just the the misfits that were in the kitchen. So I just really dug it. So as I moved away, I only worked in restaurants. I was going to school for a web design degree, but that fizzled out because I just didn't like it. Okay. So I was just constantly like going around working at different restaurants uh, in Austin and kind of building a skill set or repertoire. And then when I decided to leave Austin because I had some roommates that flaked out of me, you know, it was like real sudden. It was like all of a sudden it was like, okay, time to move to a new place. And I was like, I'm just going to move back home. And my thought process was that, you know, everybody gets good at something and then leaves town and takes it somewhere else. And so my thought process was I've built this skill set. Why don't I try to come back home and try to do something with it? So I came home and was working in various restaurants. And then Ren and I met 
and started dating. And she was kind of like, you know, you work for all these different restaurants and none of them treat you right. They all bank on your skills and you go in there and get them up and going. And then something happens and you end up leaving. It's just like, why don't you just, why don't we just do our own thing? Yeah. So that was kind of the, you know, the genesis of everything that we've been doing at Yellow City. It started off just kind of like in the bars and stuff. And then we progressed to the shack and everything, but we'll talk more on that later. Um, But yeah, as far as coming back, I just, it was just kind of a happen circumstance and, you know, there was new restaurants popping up, new local restaurants that were exciting. So I just wanted to get in there and be a part of that. And okay. so that was kind of the, you know, the, the blueprints for what we're doing now. I want to, I want to walk through some of those restaurants um, here in a second, but before we get to that point, um, where'd you go to high school here? Emerald high. Okay. Yeah. Were you, I mean, was, was the kitchen or was cooking, was that anything that was like on your radar as a teenager or as a kid or? Well, yeah, I mean, I started at Harrigan's when I was 17. So that was 97. That was, uh, you know, my junior year. Probably I graduated in 99. Okay. But like even before that, I mean, did you help your parents yeah. well, cook I mean, food or? Yeah. I mean, to think about it, if I trace it back far enough, my grandmother is an excellent cook and we had, you know, we didn't do big, long drawn out holidays, but every holiday we were over, over there and, you know, I'd help out. And my mom, when I was a kid, you know, my mom was the manager and cook at uh, Seafood Galley okay. back in the day. Where So that uh, was something she did too then. Yeah, and she, like, I would go, like, sometimes if I went to get out of going to daycare or something like that, I could, like, you know, go to work with her and, you know, help bread and fry haddock or help, you know, make the cherry pies or whatever, stuff like that. So it was kind of, I guess, ingrained in me at a young age. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was just something I did to get out of going to daycare. You yeah, know? yeah. I didn't think that the long term would be me making this my career, but you know, I definitely enjoyed it, you know, and I could see once I started working in kitchens professionally, even in the lower level, it was something I liked a lot. Like I liked the camaraderie. I liked the pace. I liked, you know, feeling like you're creating something. I really enjoyed it. So, I mean, I guess it, I could say that, you know, the seed was planted when I was a kid, but it didn't fully develop till I was, you know, almost in my twenties. And you, you mentioned, you know, having a thought process about everybody leaves Amarillo and, and you were thinking, well, you were going to come back with the skills that you developed. I mean, was that, was that a thought that you didn't have, you know, until sort of the necessity, your, your roommates left and it forced you to make some decisions or like, had you thought I'm going to get out of Amarillo, I'm going to Austin and I'm going to stay here. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, th- I left Austin to go down to, I left Amarillo to go to Austin to do pursue music and pursue, you know, just trying to live in a more progressive city and just kind of like, you know, I think a lot of people that grow up here feel like, you know, that you go to high school here, you go to middle school, grade school, and you always feel like that you're bigger than this city. And some people are like, oh, I'm going to leave town as soon as I can. And a lot of people don't come back. Mm-hmm. But I had that initial feeling, too, that, you know, I'm bigger than Amarillo. I should be doing something bigger and go somewhere bigger. But the longer you spend in a bigger city, and I can't speak for everybody, but for me personally, it was like, you know, I can see, you know, I definitely like Austin. I love Denver. I love bigger cities that I spend time in. But at the same time, you can kind of respect like the flow and you know what we have here in Amarillo as far as like a great local creative scene, lots of arts, you know, lots of cool restaurants, lots of cool people. And it always felt like it was on the precipice. So when I moved back, it was kind of like I made my decision then, you know, mm-hmm. like, but I can't say that when I was living in Austin and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this for X amount of time and then come right. back home. Right. But when I got home, I could just see that it was like, you know, it's kind of like the time is now, you know, and that was, you know, in about 2007. So a lot's changed since then. Yeah, yeah. That but, seems like a really long time ago, just yeah. culturally speaking. But, you, but I mean, you saw it even back then that Amarillo was sort of 
turning a corner and, mm-hmm. and heading yeah, I think it's. Direction. I feel like you know, growing up, you know, I was involved in the punk scene, and uh, you know, like I would, I had a venue with a guy, a friend of mine. We had a venue out off Buchanan, you know, like when I was in high school, we were running a venue booking bands. So I always knew that Amarillo had a really cool, creative, like arts scene, arts and music. So I was always, you know, I would always go to bat for Amarillo as far as having that stuff. Like back even before I was around, there was, you know, like Circle Jerks coming through here, Black Flag, all kinds of cool bands came through here back in the day because of where we're at geographically, you know, right. Amarillo being on I-40 where it's at, you know, it's the perfect stopping point for bands on tour. Like they'll normally have like a day off and then instead of having a day off, they'll pick up a show here. And oftentimes it surprised people how good it'd be. So right. I saw that at a young age and always knew that, you know, Amarillo was kind of on the precipice of something like good, you know, okay. like a sleepy Austin, you know, something yeah, like that. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. A sleepy Austin. Tell me about your education as a chef. As um, you, I mean, I, I know that, seeing the food that you create now has a ton of different influences, a lot of different cultures mm-hmm. um, feeding into it. So tell me how that sort of developed. Was it all just in working in various kitchens and with, with various people? So it's, it's a, it's a kind of a mixed bag. It's due to the people I've worked with and techniques I've learned directly under people, but also like I would get off work and I still do this, you know, go home and like just, just smash cookbooks all the time. Okay. Just constantly trying to grow and, like, you know, you're only as good as the last plate of food you put out. So I've had that in the back of my head for, you know, a decade thinking that I could constantly grow. And where I'm at now, well, even though I'm, I love the skills that I have, I'm still constantly like looking to chefs that I'm friends with or that we go, that we travel to go eat at and see things where I'm like, well, they're killing it in this respect and I'm okay. not quite there yet. So I've always just, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a mixture of, of my resume and also just my hunger to kind of grow and strive and be as good as I can. Okay. So before you and, and Ren started YCSF, tell me some of the the places in Amarillo where you worked once you came back here. I came back and I feel like I bounced it. There's some places that are kind of foggy to me, but I know that Basil Docks, well, which is now 575, right. I came in there and kind of revamped a lot of stuff. They had a really cool, like I liked Brian and everything he was doing and like, you know, because he, he, that's a concept he brought back from Denver. You right, know? right. So, and so I... I was there at a time where I think it was still, they were still kind of finding themselves. So I came in and helped Brian, you know, with some tweaks on the dough, some tweaks on some salad dressings and stuff like that and became kitchen manager over there. But I think where I was as a person, I was still kind of just, would just, you know, it's just kind of, I think I rubbed people the wrong way still at that time because okay. I was, you know, I was a kind of a punk kid still. Still, still figuring out yeah, I mean, adulthood like, and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Like the, my skill set was, was definitely exceeding most people that were there. But I think I could have been a little bit more like humble about it and stuff like that if I really want to look inwards on it. But definitely uh, Basil Docks 575, that was a place I was at for a little while. Um, I came in and stepped in at Sava, which was like a nightmare. Sava is the place that sort of went viral, viral yeah. because of uh, the note that the yeah. yeah, was that the owner? Had, or it was, was, the thing about this guy, if I, and I don't want to you know drag this out too long about People can go back and Google the software. Yeah, you can and, see, and it. see it. So. Yeah, but he was he's kind of like a I mean, I needed a job. I was in a transitional period. But that's the last place that I worked where I was like, I worked for somebody else. Like after Rin and I were together at that point, and she's like, you know, this is the last place you're gonna work. Hmm. You know, she was a big proponent for starting our own thing and everything like that. So after that, it was like, you know, we started doing like, you know, you'd seen the taco guy and the Dianus guy out at the bars and stuff. Sure. So we're like, we'll just do that. And so we start 
cooking. We were in an apartment at this time, and we started cooking everything there and trying to go out on weekend nights to the bars and try to sell stuff. And, you know, ran into trouble with the health department, like, and we're chatting with them. They're like, so we're like, we're going to get a food truck. And at the time, this is like a no-go. You know, there was food trucks in town, but they were all over on the boulevard. They were unlicensed. Yeah, there wasn't really even a... I guess a system for, for doing no. a lot of that stuff. I mean, there was in other parts of Texas, you'd think it'd be, you know, kind of like a, a standard vocabulary for yeah. all the different cities in Texas. Just hadn't come to Amarillo yet. No. Nah. And so, and they weren't, they weren't about it at all. So we met with a lot of resistance there. And then just by happenstance, man, we were driving around one day and saw the, where the shack was at. I think it was uh, the Rio Grande grill at the time. We saw, I think Ren saw either on, I forget, she saw somewhere that he was trying to sell it. So we went there and talked to him and ended up picking up that place. But we initially wanted to do a food truck, but the city was fighting us so hard yeah. on it that we just got that place and we just called it our food truck without wheels and kind of tried to start doing what we wanted to do there. And we had no idea how it would turn out. You know, we were just kind of like just going with it, you know. So tell me about the response to it. Initially, uh, we we opened up. On a on a four twenty on four twenty, I've what year was that? So thirteen. Okay. Um, Music box was coincidentally having like a big four twenty, you know, party that they do every year. Right. So there was a little bit of a crowd there for that, and then we were trying to do what we wanted to do, but you know, like I think it was initially it took a little bit for people to catch on, but when it caught on, it was crazy. It was mm-hmm. like you know lines into the street on Tenth Street, you know, every day, and so. We were blown away. Like we were just putting our heads down and doing what we wanted to do, you know, taking ideas that I had. And then, you know, with Rin helping out with the marketing, that's really what made the brand is her like guerrilla style kind of a punk rock attitude of how we marketed ourselves and just being out there and you're really using social media as a tool. Yeah. That was like, and that was still pretty early. Yeah. A lot I've, of restaurants mm, use Instagram and stuff like that. Yeah. Ton of, like we were getting hit up, you know, when everybody figured out that we were there, Cumulus came by, all the different radio stations came by. Everybody's like, you need radio spots. And we're like, or you need commercials. And we're like, no, nah, we're just going to depend on social media because they've been working so far. And mm-hmm. now that's become, you know, the cornerstone of, of any local business trying to market themselves because it can be free and you can you can pay a little bit to boost posts right. and stuff. But back then it was just just tooth and nail. We were just grinding at it and coming up with ways to to brand ourselves in a way that let people know like what we are, what we're trying to do at the same time, just being really focused and trying to deliver what we promised. But at, at the same time, your menu was, I think, pretty unique. Yeah. Because it, you were doing stuff in Amarillo, whether it was Korean-style tacos or, you know, a, a Cubano or something like that, that nobody else was doing. Right. And that's a. I think that goes to the fact that, you know, I've been in Austin for seven years. Rand had left town and moved to Houston and Galveston area for years. And then we both came back and we were like, when we talked about what we wanted to do, it was like, she's like, you know, you've worked at all these places. You have all these styles and tricks in your, in your, in your bag. And it's like, what do you want to do? And so I like would try to think about, it's like a mixture of things, dishes that I've had across the nation that I really liked and thought I could do better or put my own twist on or things that we were just trying to like try something new. And, you know, like you said, try to offer things that this town hadn't really seen. And if they had seen it, but they hadn't seen it done properly Mm -hmm. or like, doing like Asian dishes and really paying homage to like doing them. You know, I, I can't say I do them fully traditional, but going as far as I can to do it, to respect the culture while still making it my own. And okay. that's what we still, that's, I mean, that's the ethos of what we're still doing to this day. 
and people responded to it. I mean, it, yeah, you, you were selling out. And there yeah. were lines and all kinds of stuff just I mean, to pick something up and eat it in your car. You know, yeah. And it became like we created like a whole counterculture with the shack of just people like spending their lunch breaks or their off days with us. You know, sitting in line. You know, sometimes for an hour just to get food and just to go sit at Elwood Park and eat it or right. eat it in the car. And so that really spoke to us as far as like we're doing something right, you know, and that we just segued all that inertia into something with the bigger when we moved into the brick and mortar. So with that decision, um, I, I did want to ask about one element of it, knowing that you came from, you know, you'd worked at some higher end restaurants, some places where you're not just focused on the taste of the food, but like you're plating it and, and there's an appearance element and the presentation and then at, at YCSF, you know, you're handing it to somebody to take to their car or to carry to work or something like that. I mean, was, was there a part of that that you had to, I guess, let go of some aspect and say, this is how it's going to be. It's not going to be as pretty as I want it to be. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. There was a big like part of my heart that kind of got left out because another restaurant I'd worked here in town, I'd op- I opened it as kind of like the sous chef was Kushiyama and it was kind of short lived, mm-hmm. but Worked for Richard Chen, who's a Michelin-starred chef. You know, he's worked in Vegas and, you know, Shanghai and everywhere. And I learned a lot of stuff from him as far as, like, also, like, aspects of plating and stuff like that. Like, he was a real big minimalist, whereas I'm kind of the opposite of that. Like, I'm like, let's hit him with it. You know, he would be real subtle with it. But I learned a lot of restraint from him, you know, like, um, put a lot of power into something, but at the same time, make it really clean and nice-looking. And it's kind of unassuming. So when you buy it, when you dig into it, that it'd be like an explosion of flavor. So it was a big departure for me to like put things in paper boats and cardboard boxes. And like at the same time, I knew we were providing something that like uh, there was a niche for it that needed to be met. And so like, and I also knew that, the shack wasn't the end all be all. I knew there was an end game. Yeah. The, so you, the, you didn't see that as a permanent thing. You thought no. that would be a stepping stone to something. Yeah. Else. And if, and if we basically, we wanted to do whatever we could to introduce people to our flavors and to our style of cooking and what we wanted to do. And so honestly, if I look back on it, it was probably a good thing to happen right then because instead of being focused on outlandish plating designs mm-hmm. or, you know, squirt bottles everywhere and this and that, I was really focused on putting, the flavor inside that's right. what really mattered so in a way where we're at now with what i do with my food is like it's kind of like i had kind of had to design it from the inside out and focus on you know if you're building a car and you want to put a really good engine in it and then figure out you know the body modifications after that that's kind of what we did as far as just figuring out how to make it the best it can be going out in a paper boat mm-hmm. that way when we do have a chance to plate it up and make it look nice that we have that aspect already you can, anybody can go on Instagram and look at a chef's page sure. and see how he plates something and go mimic it. But can you actually make it taste good? Can you put five ingredients on a plate and have them all sing harmoniously? And very few cooks or chefs in this town can do that. I think our time in the shack was really, as far as my own personal growth, it was a time for me to figure out how to make everything sing and flavors. And that's a big part of what people like about our food is we may pair things that are on polar opposites right, of yeah. the thing, but they work because we've thought about it. We've gone into the chemistry of it and looked at it on a biological level. So plus you had to learn how to do it fast too. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you couldn't be real yeah. precious about things, you know, no. while you had that many people in line. And that's the thing. If you're, if you're doing things the right way throughout all the steps, you, you can do things fast because you've got it down. And some things I learned from like chefs like David Chang and stuff like that in New York is like your prep is, is everything. Your mise en place is everything where it's like, get everything 
to the point where it's like just before it needs to be served. That way, when you when you have to run through a service, everything's all your arsenal's ready to go. You just got to put things, cook things, and it's all mm-hmm. all the all the minute stuff is right there for you. So I mean, if anybody's listening to this and thinking, you know, how can I get into this game or what's a good thing? Mise en place is everything. Like being prepared, set yourself up for success. Like you know, like we do chefs tasting menu dinners now at YCSF, and we'll spend twelve hours prepping and cooking for you know a two hour service. Right. Right. And so. That's a big part of it that I learned was that, you know, just not only do we have to do it fast, we have to make it taste good and the details, you know, the devil's in the details with that stuff. So tell me about um, you actually launching the brick and mortar place with uh, with YCSF once you moved out of the shack and, and into you know, a, a much larger footprint. Was was that, that feel like a big risk to you? Did it feel like kind of scary since you're opening up a, a very small building, you know, like the shack is one thing, but then like having a legit restaurant where people come and sit down. Right. That feels like another level. So. Oh yeah. And plus having a staff that depends on us, you know, for their livelihood, you know, there was a lot of it. It kind of, the way it came about was kind of funny because we had met Colin and Grant and they at the time were still affiliated with the uh, Amarillo brewing co-op that, you know, dissolved, but they came to us and we're like, yo, we like, it actually started off as they were wanting to use our name because our name in itself, Yellow City Street Food, we were the first business to use Yellow City in its name. Yeah. You know, and it was a reference to our friend John Rivette. When not, we were coming up in the punk scene and stuff, he had a, 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 a little art studio that he called Yellow City, and that was the actual first using of it. And had, nobody had ever called it that. And then we'd throw shows there and go to art shows there. And so, like, we kind of were trying to, we were thinking about a name for our business. We we're like, what about Yellow City Street Food? And as an homage to him, mm-hmm. we had no idea that fifty other businesses would yeah. see it and start and just be like, "Oh, that's great! I'm going to use that too." There's a lot of them now. Yeah. So Colin and Grant came to us and we're like, "Hey, we like your name," and we foolishly thought that they were wanting us to be like they were wanting because they were talking about opening a brewery with the the co-op guys. That was a co-op thing, right? And we thought that they wanted to use us or for us to to develop a kitchen and be part of this as a kitchen. And that wasn't the case at first. So that, that happened. And then we just kept working. We figured out that wasn't the deal, but it came back around to where the brew pub was kind of dissolving. And then, so the initial plans to start six car, we wouldn't call it six car time, but the initial plans to do something were coming about, but then we were like, well, we need to open, we need like a way that we can make money to get this brewery open. Mm -hmm. So like, we're like, okay, let's open up a brick and mortar yellow city and that can kind of be, you know, a little bit of a revenue stream to kind of do that and do all. So it was initially going to be just a side thing, but then everything went South with the co-op and all that stuff. And then YCSF became the focal point, but we had acquired Colin and Grant as partners at that time. So it was really weird how it all came about. It's not just me and Ren anymore. Mm -hmm. It's we've got partners and getting the brick and mortar open, I think took everybody we couldn't have done it without, you know, Colin went and found money at different places. You know, he he's a great, he's really great at fundraising. Okay. You know, and Grant helped build the space out. But the, looking back on it now, it seems like it was, it happened organically. But mm-hmm. I remember at the time that there was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that made it happen. Did you wonder if the customers would follow you? From, yeah, at first you know, close to downtown to a little bit further away. and Yeah, on the wrong side of Wolfland. Right, yeah. You know, um, yeah, we, we wondered that initially at, Big time, and in a, but through our branding and Ren's marketing and stuff like that, we managed to you know people we had hooked people 
you know, from the, from the food to people following the page. And so initially, I don't, I can't remember if it was right off the bat, just the same kind of crowd as we had, but, but didn't take long at all for people to realize that we had moved over there okay. to follow us. So, and we still have people to this day that are, you know, multiple times a week regulars that used to sit Can in the car. back to. Yeah. Some of our employees, a lot of them were customers that were already, you know, frequented the business, you know, as a patron side. So. Well, it's like with a lot of other businesses, I know that. Um, that the palace has a lot of baristas now that started as people, college students who just came there for coffee, you know? Um, and that with you, when you create a culture, when you have something that people really like, I think it's natural for some people to say, I, I don't just like this. I want to be part of this. Yeah, totally. And we try to like nurture a, a working environment that we, we have very little turnover, you know, like most of our staff has been there since we opened on Wolfland and, the few people that have left have left because I mean we, we've we've fired very little people hmm. you know and so we take pride in the fact that we've created like a family you know and we're fiercely like loyal to each other we don't just let anybody come work you know it's like even if we need a dishwasher you know there's a certain vetting stage that people need you know like need to be able to vouch for the person that's going to be there because not only do they have to do a good job and be a good worker we all in the family have to be able to get along with them, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. Yeah. And they can't be like anybody that's like a toxic person. So absolutely. I mean, I like to think that not only are we providing a service to our customers and everything like that, we're providing like a, a safe working environment for people that want that, that choose to come work for us and spend so much of their time with us every week. Okay. You mentioned six car. Um, and I feel like we should at least touch on that. I, I know it's, it was a business that you and, and Colin and Grant launched uh, with big dreams and then eventually got to the point where the three of you, you know, have now moved on from there. And and I don't want to, like, tear open any wounds or anything like that. But I, I do want to, to kind of check in with you and see, like, if, if there was something that you learned or something that you can look back on and say this was – um, you know, this was why it didn't work out for the three of us, or this is, you know, something that, that I've taken from it and I'm going to use going forward. Definitely was a learning experience. Um, you know, like if you, a lot of people, you get your ego involved with things and you realize that, you know, like for me personally, it was like Ren and I had started Yellow City and had some, some failure, but mostly success. And your ego really gets built up on that. So you think when you go into another project that it's going to be nothing but success, you know, and we gambled heavily on the city and the people of the city to kind of support and show patronage to a downtown brewery. You know, you know, I'm not mad at anything. Like I said, it was a learning experience. Like Amarillo, while I will say it's on the, you know, like on the come up of something great and it's going to be, you know, in 10 years, this is going to be something nobody even recognizes now. We're still in the infancy of yeah. it, you know, especially with people trying to convince people to go downtown like more than once a week. And the space, like we we partnered up with some really cool trades and people, you know, like Playa Design built an amazing space. And we had some really cool people involved with the project. But to raise the money for the kind of how big the project was, I mean, starting off with a two tenant building where we have to sh- we have to go share a building with Crush, which that seems kind of, you know. Does it really make sense? You know, a like brew pub and a wine bar, you know, yeah, splitting the. Yeah. And when the plans for six car were came about, I thought six car was going to be kind of my opus for, you know, what I wanted to do was highbrow pub food from around the world. Okay. Like, you know, like there's drinking culture in every country in the world, you know, 
whether it's izakayas in Japan, pubs in England and, you know, Ireland to like, you know, little brew houses or, you know, there's so many things that involve drinking culture and food. And so the way I looked at it, what I wanted to do was a study on pub food from around the world and then kind of elevate it. Being in downtown, being in a new space like that, and this is, like I said, this was all when it was still planned. But when this, as the space started getting built and I saw how it was kind of fleshing out to be more like a beer hall style, where it was like kind of like all about the numbers and not much about the experience, I kind of started to take the wind out of my sails a little bit as far as like as my opening menu over there was like, you know, lobster Tom Caw with like burning lemongrass and stuff like that. And we executed some really pretty food, but and a lot of people were getting it, but a lot of people were coming in wondering where the, you know, where the Coke products were, yeah. where the fish and chips was at, where the... I want a Bud Light and a hot dog. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Colin and myself, we thought that Six Car was a no-brainer. We thought we'd be fighting people away with sticks just you know, until you open the doors and let them flood in. But, you know, the fever wasn't there. And, yeah. and so, you know, at the end of the day, I was happy to be able to walk away from Six Car, you know, kind of like injury-free financial-wise. But... Looking back on it, I can see the mistakes and the missteps that we made as far as like budgeting and how we came in. And also a project that big, you know, one of the first new buildings downtown in like 40 years and high profile, you know, it's, it was definitely a learning experience, but if I had to take anything from it that I wouldn't, that would apply in the future would be like, you know, don't open a business with a ton of partners that you don't know that you haven't sat down and met face to face who don't know you. Yeah, and the overhead was just crazy. I think that that the food I cook could have could have held up something that high profile. They wanted, you know, like like a Cheddar's or something like that. Okay. You know, they wanted something very <laughs> Cheddar's com- is really popular. There's yeah. always people there when yeah. I drive past because it's comfortable. It's comfortable. Yeah. You know, people. Yeah. But I always wonder why are there so many people there at Cheddar's? Well, it's because it's people in this town and this in this area specifically. They don't like to be scared. They don't like to be out of out of control. Or they don't like to be uncomfortable. And they religiously go to places that make them feel comfortable. Hmm. And a big thing about my food and things we've always tried to do, like we've always said, like we're sensory terrorists. We're like trying to take you out of your element. You know, at the end of the day, we're gonna we're here to to nurture you and give you the best experience possible. But we want to scare you. We want to hmm. you know put hot food in your mouth. We want to do things that are provocative and. The investors and stuff like that, they just didn't see that. They didn't understand that that mindset that I had as far as like trying to like and I also think that they didn't want to sit around and wait for people to catch on. Like, you know, Yellow City being in the shack and it's such a small environment, we had time to to wait until people caught on and figured out what we were doing and then they start supporting. Yeah, because overhead's super low. I mean you're Exactly, not- exactly. We can tread water all day. But in a, in a business like Six Car, you know, trying to get to make them understand that it's going to take a year for people to come around, a year and a half, two years, people come around and be like, okay, because, you know, a big part of our reviews at Six Car are people that were traveling that stopped in and, you know, they're from bigger cities and bigger markets. So they know exactly what we're trying to do and they get it and they like provocative food. But for the people that live in the city and people that kind of, you know, for the, you know, were kind of customers, you know, like they weren't. They didn't get it yet. I want to uh, I want to switch gears a little bit um, and ask you about DJing because I know that's something else that you kind of do on the side. And and I, you know, for a while you were a chef at um, running two different restaurants and still finding time to do that occasionally on a weekend. I, I, 
what what role does that play like in your personal life, your balance, all that kind of stuff? Uh, well, I was in bands growing up, like in hardcore bands and to- uh, bands that would occasionally tour, you know, in the late 90s. And then, like I said, I moved to Austin for music and start- I started DJing in 98, got my own stuff and started figuring it out. And that was really a craft I, you know, like when I lived in Austin, aside from work, I spent a lot of time by myself because when I moved to Austin, I had a lot of friends from Amarillo who had moved to Austin. It seemed like every time I went to go hang out anywhere, all I was doing was hanging out with a bunch of Amarillo people yeah. in Austin. So I kind of broke away and went, started living with some guys that were going to UT and just started hanging out with people like and getting my immersing myself in Austin. And so I really started perfecting my craft as a DJ there. It's just something that would always be kind of like on the back burner for me to do in my off time to be creative and stuff like that. And then, when I moved back here, I just kept it going. And then, you know, it's you play a lot in town here and there, but still try to tour like once a year. And so it's just, you know, two-sided coin. It's just like, I mean, while I have everything going on food-wise and restaurant-wise, the DJing is still an outlet for me to be creative and do something that's just kind of me, you know, like in the business and everything like that you have to depend on so many people to make everything come together. Right. But when you're DJing, it's, it's just you, it's just you and it's, 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 it can succeed or fail in your, in your hands. So I guess I kind of like that aspect of it. Um, you know, getting out, getting to travel with it and tour with it, you know, I don't get to do as much as I want because of, you know, just how busy we are. But the times that, I, that Ren and I can get away and hit the road and go play some shows and with friends of ours from LA or, you know, the East coast, it's always fun. So it's just something that, it's it's is it's as big a part of me as cooking is, so it's like it's not going to go anywhere. I just don't have the time that I want to devote to it all the time. So it's it's kind of come a hobby, but okay. yeah, but it's something that you know, like I said, just it's another creative creative outlet for me. You know, a lot of people are like, "How do you find time to do all this stuff?" Well, when I don't find time to do all this stuff, you know, I'll be dead. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just try to just try to stay busy. You know, like between work and family and then the music, it's. It all keeps me like happy to be, you know, constantly like vibrating in that kind of frequency. You've you've talked about how Amarillo was growing. You saw that turn toward a little bit more progressive culture, you know, fifteen years ago. Where do you think we are now, and and, and where do you think we're going? Do do you feel like we're still making good progress in that direction? I do. I do. Um, I think Amarillo. If I'm speaking about the city itself, I think there's a ton of people here doing a ton of cool stuff. There's a ton of great bands. There's a ton of great bars slash venues that are supportive of stuff like that, you know, and there's friends of our, like we've made a lot of friends in different local businesses that are all trying to push the city forward. I think that the thing that Amarillo fights with the most is Amarillo. I think it's like it's Siamese twins that don't like each other. Okay. That's kind of how I look at the city because for, for, every, for everybody that's trying to do something good and do something like progressive, there's that many people that are, trying to keep it the, the small town mentality, you know, okay. like it's like, like you, one twin's trying to pull the other twin forward and the other one's trying to mm-hmm. stand its ground yeah. and, and not get yeah. shoved in a direction. Exactly. It's like, you may have somebody, you know, that's trying to do this and go and be progressive, but their parents are the antithesis of that. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and that's, it's, I think it's a big gap in the age thing. Like, and I, I think the current political environment's kind of like, is, has brought a lot more of that stuff to the forefront. But I feel like, the city here, the people that a lot of people in the city, they want it to be a small town still, you know, and they're older people and stuff like that. But I think we should, you know, I can't believe we haven't, you know, I think we're in talks to like revamp the civic center, but nobody wants to pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing 
good comp. Like, you know, like I was downtown for the whole year with six cars, seeing the, the ballpark get built, seeing metered parking come and play. And, you know, people were just out, you know, they're, they're freaked out about it. So we're all of us that have lived in bigger cities and are waiting for Amarillo to catch up and be like that. There's that many people that are trying to fight it. So, I mean, I feel like the lifeblood of the city is definitely still creative and pushing the envelope, but I, I feel like the, there's something about it that's keeping it. It's like we're we're, we're finally trying to outgrow. We've hit, we've hit this glass ceiling and we yeah. just need to break through. Yeah. But we're finding some resistance. I think, you know, I think the ballpark was a cool step to bring something, you know, as far as like bringing people downtown. Like at Six Car, we thought that was going to be a big tentpole for us to anchor on and get a lot of business from. What we didn't realize is that people come downtown and go to the game and then they might stop somewhere to get a drink before or after the game or get food, but they're not people that are going downtown for an experience, you yeah. know, they spent their money at the ballpark. They're trying to get back home. And a lot of people that go to the ballpark are, you know, you know, like the good old fashioned Amarillo person. that's not trying to go eat something weird or eat. No, they know. can get their hot dog and yeah. Coors Light. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. What, what holds Amarillo back is the, is the cancer of convenience for people. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. So like I said, like where I feel like that we're pushing in this, every, the wheels are grinding, moving Amarillo forward, which I are, I think they are. I think it's slowed a bit just because of resistance from half the city, you know? But I think it's coming, hopefully. This episode is sponsored by Terra Accounting and Consulting. I own my own business, and let me tell you, it's not for the faint of heart, especially after a year like last one. Wearing multiple hats like I do, like, like most entrepreneurs do, can be a recipe for burnout. So anytime I can outsource stuff beyond my expertise, that's a good decision. Terra Accounting and Consulting understands this. They're a CPA firm built for doers like me. They help business owners build financial strategies that pave the way toward increased profitability and personal financial growth. Call Terra Accounting to schedule a consultation today and mention Hey Amarillo to receive $100 off any service. When it comes to accounting, payroll, bookkeeping, and tax prep. Consider it done with Terra Accounting and Consulting. Okay, we're back with Scott Buchanan. Scott, this is the part I call 8 Straight. 8 Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight fossils discovered in Paladero Canyon, including land turtles, saber-toothed cats, and a palm leaf. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay. Um, okay, so the first one, other than your own, what's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? Um, okay. Or is that hard because so many of your friends are, are chefs? And, well, you know, like what's funny is whenever Ren and I eat in our off time, we don't cook at home enough because we're always cooking for other people. Right. So we do eat out a fair amount. Um, Ichiban's a really big spot. Like yeah. I was there I was there an hour ago. You know, it's like it's a place that I enjoy um, – we go to Bangkok, Tokyo a lot. Um, been on a real big Indian oven kick lately. Mm-hmm. So basically, we, the restaurants we eat at and try to support are, you know, we try to go to local restaurants where we can put something back into the community. But it could be you know, like anything from Tacos Garcia out on the boulevard. Not the one on Ross, but the boulevard one. That place is awesome. For me to go eat somewhere my day off or in my off time and spend money at a place, I want it to be local and I want it to be like, 
soul food, you know? Okay. Is that why you're, are you drawn more to like international cuisine yeah. as opposed to a steakhouse or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, Ren's vegan. And, uh, okay. I mean, so I, that makes, that makes yeah, it And I eat vegan a lot. Um, like, uh, cooking the cuisine that we cook, you know, I obviously have to taste things and, and stuff like that. But like, I don't eat a lot of, I certainly don't eat a lot of steak and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we definitely like the international vibe a lot more. You know, we love, like if we go eat out of town, you know, like we try to eat a lot of sushi, like a lot of raw food. Um, we have a really big Asian community in this city, yeah. you know, but be it Thai people or Lao people, there's all kinds of hidden gyms. You know, if you ask 10 people, they'll give you 20 different restaurants you've never heard of yeah, that are exactly. in some like, you know, 150, 200 square foot place way out in the boulevard or by the airport or something. So we check all those out, but yeah, we're definitely in, into the more Asian or Indian or okay. something like that. What's the most underrated aspect of life in Amarillo? Amarillo has an identity crisis. I feel like it's a, it's like an insecurity that Amarillo doesn't realize that it's where it is. It, it thinks it's, I think for the most part city thinks it's, you know, maybe 1992 sometimes. Okay. Like I feel like Amarillo's biggest problem is Amarillo. It's like, it's fighting itself on too many things. Like, uh, it's just an insecurity, like an identity crisis. I feel like half the city wants to be old school and keep it like a small town. And the other half of the city wants to be progressive and wants to push forward into the future. What does this area have too much of? Um, too many chains, too many <laughs> chain restaurants, too many churches and too many banks. Well. <laughs> Like that, that, you've described every corner in Amarillo exactly. as at least three of those things. So, I mean, not to knock anybody's personal journey religious wise or anything like that. That's a whole other conversation, but, uh, it's probably a different podcast. Yeah, know? exactly. But I definitely think that there is, we constantly see churches getting built here and stuff like that, where is, I feel like we've had enough for years. I feel like that we have a really strong bank identity in this town. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of different financial institutions and, you know, A and B is kind of the king shark in that water. But my main thing to say on that question is chain restaurants. Like I know a big, for most people, a big sign of being like a Dallas or an Austin or something like that is being able to drive down certain sections of the highway and see all the chain restaurants that you see in the bigger cities, you right. know, the Panera bread or the cheddars or the, you know, so and I get it. I think those are a necessary evil. I think those places have, I think those chains have to see commodity in Amarillo to come here. Mm -hmm. And I think that that brings other things here. So it's kind of like a means to an end kind of thing. I, th I don't think you get to be, you know, a 500,000 population without bringing in all those chains, but I definitely would like to see people support local stuff more. Oh, absolutely. What does this area not have enough of? Hmm. I don't, I think there could always be more local businesses, you know, like uh, we just recently lost a favorite local business of ours just because of just negligence, I think. Mm. Uh, I mean, but I definitely think there could be more community driven stuff, more local business that I want to see more local businesses that are doing what we do, like putting their money where their mouth is and really delivering what they're trying to bring. Like there's a lot of places in town, restaurants and otherwise that sell you in a concept and when you get there and you experience what they're offering, it's, it's subpar. Yeah. Execution's it, not quite. What yeah. That's a, that's a big thing of what we've always prided ourselves on is like faithful execution of what we're trying to. Okay. Yeah. Like just like we, if, we, if we're telling you that we're bringing something, it's going to be that and it's going to exceed expectations rather than, you know, not exceed them. 
How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? <laughs> um, since being back and, you know, like raising a family here and stuff like that, Amarillo definitely has perks as far as like you can get into a house, you can buy a house for, you know, a fraction of what it would cost you in Austin or for us opening a business like we've opened, you know, it'd be at Yellow City or even opening six car. We've opened those businesses and, and maintained those businesses at a fraction of what it would cost in a downtown market like mm-hmm. Dallas or Austin. So we, what I try to tell people is that, you know, like you can live here and afford like a really decent like lifestyle. And you, we're close enough to things where you can travel and, and do a lot of stuff. And I don't necessarily want people to think that, okay, Amarillo is subpar because you can do so much here, but you have to travel to do this or yeah. X or Y. I think while, in the, while we're waiting for Amarillo to kind of catch up with the rest of Texas or the rest of the United States, I definitely think it's a place that it's sleepy enough here to where you can raise a family. You can, And I know this is a uh, thing that people always say that like, oh, it's a great place to raise your kids. And without being corny, like I think there's some validity to that statement. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely a place like you can open a business, you can do something local and it's, you can start it for a fraction of the place and maintain it for a fraction of the price. Like when I tell, I have friends come through here, like, you know, like I book shows and have bands come through here or DJs come through here and they're always so surprised when they get here. Cause they drive in they're like, okay, they don't know much about Amarillo, but when they, after they they're here for a day and they're getting ready to go to the next stop, they're always so stoked on what they, what they experienced here. Yeah. Because it's like, if you look at Amarillo from a, a wide angle shot, it doesn't look like much, but when you really get inside and see the minutia and all the details and the people, the lifeblood of this place is the people. And yeah. that's kind of what I try to explain to people is that it's really a sum of all its parts. I think that's the best way I would describe it. Okay. We, uh, we talked about steakhouses and this is a question or a form of this question. I ask every guest. So I'm interested in your, your answer. When was the last time you went to the big Texan? Um, I haven't, haven't eaten at the big Texan since a birthday I probably had when I was like, maybe 15 or something like that. Okay. Um, a long time. We were at the big Texan recently because the Rick mobile was there and we were trying to catch up on all that stuff. But uh, we don't, I mean, I res- Wait, obviously Ren's not going to go. There's not yeah. a lot of vegan options. No, no, definitely not. Um, but I do respect the big Texan for their marketing. Like we've, you know, like we've gone on tours, music tours and you know, you can start seeing the billboards for big Texan. Oh yeah. Just right outside California, yep. you know, and it's crazy. So I get what it is, and it's kind of like the Cadillac Ranch. You know, it's something that, like I touched on before, where we're at geographically, passing through I forty. A while back, there's the Big Texan and Cadillac Ranch. That's the only reason people stopped. Yeah, here. and those are on opposite sides of yeah. town. There's- yeah. So, what I think that has been awesome is that not just us, but a lot of people have started creating more destination spots for people because that's a a big part of of the market here isn't, isn't just appealing to the locals. That's the first battle. But I think the second thing is having something that's substantial enough to where people are stopping on their way somewhere else. Right. They're like making a destination. We've had people come through all the time. They're like, I was leaving California locked in vegan restaurants on I-40 and have been, I put you guys on my GPS in California and yeah. drove straight here. And it's like, it's cool. We're like people come through and they're blown away by what we're offering, you know, but as far as big texting goes, I respect it being a landmark and stuff like that. And, being in business as long as they have, you know, there's something and commendable. Doing to that. something right. Yeah. I don't have any, I don't have a problem with it. We just don't ever go out there. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? It was Evocation. Yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Um, yeah. And there was a time, it's a funny story about yeah, Evocation was that uh, 
whenever Roman first got accepted to uh, law school in Yale, Colin got wind that they were possibly going to sell the business. And so six car was going to buy it. Six car made an offer. Yeah. We were going to buy, that. we were going to buy a uh, vacation and uh, we thought it would be, cause at the time six car was underperforming and we thought Evo is successful and it could be something we could bring in and we could take over the, you know, the Coulter spot. Mm-hmm. And also we were going to turn the upstairs pub into like, you know, during the day downtown people could come and get the Evo coffee, you know, and it's like that. The investors shot it down. Um, and I think that if we would have gotten it, it would have, it'd still be around to this day. You know, even if I wasn't a part of six car, six car would be, you know, evocation would still be a thing. And so we were devastated to lose that. But, you know, like that being said, we've been big supporters and friends with Jason at 806 for mm-hmm. years. You know, I DJed the first, the first, first Thursday at the 806 okay. when it first opened. So wow. yeah, long time. That's a long time. And so we love 806 and we've always continued to support them. And now, you know, with Evo being closed, we can just focus on, you know, having 806 coffee at the rest. Cause we do on brunch on Saturdays, we always have local coffee. And so we're going to segue over to having, you know, them, but definitely Evocation and 806 have been, you know, great coffee shops in this town. Okay. And uh, last question here. What's your favorite Amarillo neighborhood? Driving through, you know, you, I love the history and the, the architecture of the Wolfwood neighborhood. Yeah. But I grew up, you know, I'm, I, w- I grew up over off of Fannin in the 58th. I grew up in South Georgia okay. and Fannin yeah. and in Emerald High. So it's like, you know, I, I love a lot of Emerald neighborhoods. Um, you know, I like to, I drive through the neighborhoods. Like I don't take main streets everywhere. I cut through neighborhoods yeah. a lot when I drive. So I can't really say that I have a favorite, you know, I love, you know, the, the neighborhood right outside downtown, you know, the red brick neighborhoods sure, and yeah. then, you know, and, but I also got love for over there in the South Georgia district because I was I grew up there. You know. Okay. So Scott, that that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So, like, what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? And it's you know it's wide open. Whatever whatever you want. If somebody was going to take a snapshot of what there is to do here, what what you should do if you had a limited amount of time here, I think you should definitely see a show, check out some bands, check out some DJs. Uh, we have a really great skateboarding scene here mm-hmm. with a group called Cold Cuts that is, a, I mean, a big family of people as far as like keeping kids on their skateboard at the skate park or on, amongst people that are like doing the same thing, keeping kids out of trouble. Um, so, I mean, really, that's what I would just say. Focus on the arts, the music and definitely skateboarding. Cool. Scott Buchanan, thanks so much for being on the show. I thanks appreciate it. Me, man. Appreciate it. It was a good time. And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Scott for the original interview and for being patient while I sat on it for nearly a year. The Diablo Shrimp Tacos at YCSF are amazing, so go go get those. I also want to say thanks to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, Wick Realty, and Terra Accounting and Consulting for sponsoring the show. And thank you. Thank you for listening all last year. Um, Thanks for listening this year to all one of our episodes. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you and the local people, especially who support the show financially through patreon.com slash Amarillo. The executive producers of this show include Josh Wood, Chris Elda, Barbara and Jim Witten, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Wes Reeves, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossiman, Joshua Rafe, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 178 My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.